Guys, I want to thank GoHunt.com Insider for being the title sponsor of this podcast. Get everything you need in one spot. Find and plan your hunts more effectively than ever. With GoHunt.com Insider, you get complete state coverage. See detailed information for every unit, every species, every hunt. Interactive maps. Quickly find hunts that meet your exact search criteria and explore them easily. That is one of the features that I really like on the Insider. Strategy articles. Learn new things and find hidden opportunities with exclusive weekly articles. And then species breakdowns. Top trophy units are hiding in plain sight. Find them with our statistical and historical data. Guys, they also give away a ton of gear and a ton of hunts. They give away approximately $100,000 per year. They just, in the month of July alone, gave away four hunts. One antelope hunt, two elk hunts, and a mule deer hunt. Uh, They gave a $22,500 doll sheep hunt to Nahanni Butte Outfitters, three Red Rock Precision Rifles, uh, five Zeiss Conquest HD binoculars with a $7,500 value. I know when I signed up for GoHunt.com Insider the first month, I was actually one out of 100 that had won a phone scope, digiscoping adapter. Guys, I wanted to read a couple quotes from a couple of hunters talking about the GoHunt Insider. Jason Hairston, founder of Kuyu, says, GoHunt's goal is to help hunters spend less time researching and more time in the field. Mission accomplished. Ryan Hatch, founder of Muley Crazy Magazine, says, Having been involved in Western hunting industry for almost 30 years, I can tell you that GoHunt Insider is the first of its kind. The amount of value and information they offer to the Western hunter is unmatched. Guys, get a $50 Kuyu gift card when you join the GoHunt.com Insider right now. Go to www.gohunt.com forward slash insider. Click on the blue Join Now button and use the promo code JSCOTT at checkout and they will send you an electronic gift card worth $50. I want to thank GoHunt.com Insider for being a sponsor of this podcast. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have a real special episode. We have Pete Similero of Yellowhorn Outfitters and Pete probably has more uh, been on more sheep uh, harvests than anybody I know and uh, is uh, definitely a veteran when it comes to hunting uh, and and sheep hunting, and as someone that I've looked up to for a long, long time, uh, I've I've known Pete. Dang, it seems like dang near 20 years now, Pete. Uh, and I've just uh, admired him for a long time, and and I've gotten to know his uh, son Mike, uh, who's a great kid, and um, Pete's a great hunter and a great man, and he's done a lot of for the state of Arizona with, with the different conservation organizations. And I look forward to picking his brain today about what's going on in our state and get his insight on, on some of the things going on. Pete, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jay, other than the fact it's hotter than heck down here in Phoenix right now. Normally I'm not here this time of year, but had to take care of some business, so that's where I'm at, and now I'm complaining about the heat. Well, and normally, Pete, aren't you up in the Springerville or Greer area? Yeah. Yeah, we have a, another home up there. Actually, it's on the little Colorado River between uh, Eager and Greer. And, uh, man, I'll tell you, this time of year, that's the place to be. And the great thing about it, Jay, I just got to tell you, you know, I w- I've worked for a long time with Game and Fish to bring bighorn sheep back into the South Fork area there, the little Colorado. 
and for the first time last week, sitting on the deck of my house and looking up the river, I watched sheep there three days in a row. And that's a great feeling because they've been gone from there several hundred years and and we've got them back. And that's that's just one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. That that's awesome. Now, um, Pete, I'm a little bit familiar with that area up there on the Little Colorado, um, the X Diamond Ranch. Uh, I think Wink Kriegler. I don't know if she still owns she that. She does. Yep. What, where are you downstream or upstream from her? Downstream, back farther toward uh, Eager, and those sheep, literally that I'm talking about, looking at, are walking right above the X Diamond, right above her ranch house and the and, and oh, the ponds, great. right up on top of the rim. Oh, that's great. That's, um, you know, Pete, you've been involved with the Arizona Desert Bighorn Sheep Society, and you've been involved with working with the Game and Fish for a long, long time. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the progression of, of some of the projects that you've seen evolve uh, over over time? Well, it's, it's it's been quite an evolution. As you know, the Sheep Society is Arizona's oldest uh, sportsman conservation organization. It was actually started by a bunch of guides uh, back in the uh, mid-60s and finally in 1967. Uh, they decided to get serious about it. In 67, 68, they formed the Arizona Desert Bighorn Sheep Society. Primary interest was water development back then. And it really wasn't until the 80s that we got into things like sheep transplants and other things, and we started moving a bunch of sheep. And uh, we're approaching moving 2,000 sheep here in Arizona. And so that has started a lot of new sheep herds. Uh, we have seen our tags go from about uh, 50 up to now uh, we're about 108, 9, 10, whatever it is this year. I don't even know. Uh, so we've seen uh, we've seen some benefits without a doubt. Uh, still got a lot of challenges, and uh, I really feel in my mind that if it weren't for the Sheep Society and uh, their working relationship with the department, and then sometimes holding the department, you know. Uh, taking them to task on certain things to benefit sheep, uh, we wouldn't be where we are today. Sportsman conservationists here have made a real big difference, and that's why we've got uh, over 6,000 sheep in the state of Arizona today. That's incredible. And um, Pete, when was the first uh, sheep hunt? What year was that when you went on your first sheep hunt or or first saw your first sheep? Um I saw sheep when I used to hike in Aravipa, and that's back in the 70s. And that was, that kind of sparked my interest, that and the writings of Jack O'Connor and things. They, those were the things that really got me going. But that's where I saw my first desert sheep back there. And um, uh, it wasn't until, like I say, the, the mid-'80s that we started moving other sheep. But that got me going. In fact, then the Wild Sheep Foundation, then actually the name was the Foundation for North American Wild Sheep, came to Phoenix in their convention in 1982. And that also was another milestone for me because it's the first time I got together with a lot of sheep nuts from basically all over North America. And so that kind of launched me, and I met a lot of the guys in the Sheep Society. I'd known a few of them back in the late 70s, but... Uh, from there, we uh, we really got aggressive, and, and it, it picked up for both me and the society. And uh, we started, you know, having fundraising efforts. Uh, in fact, Doc Bogus, who's a good friend of many of ours here, uh, or, uh, organized the first fundraiser for the Sheep Society. That took off. That put money in our pockets, and that enabled us to 
start doing a lot more things. And then we got heavily into the transplants and, and surveys and, and other programs of support for the department that uh, began to put sheep all over the state of Arizona. Yeah, the just phenomenal efforts by a lot of guys like yourself that volunteered a lot of time. I mean, it, it, people need to understand that, you know, these groups don't get paid. It's it's guys like you that that uh, volunteer their time and hours and countless hours and days and weeks and months uh, to benefit other people. Um, you know, my hat's off to you and uh, all the guys that work in the different conservation organizations. Um, Pete, what do you see as some of the challenges facing Arizona today? Well, there, there are many. Um, you know, sheep are they're an interesting animal. They're, they're, they're very fragile, actually. You know, you can take an elk, you can take a bear, uh, you can take a mule deer, white tail, any of them. They're pretty tough, and, and they compete very well with other critters and, and, and problems within the environment. Sheep don't. They really don't. It's one of those things where uh, it could be any number of things from disease to poor habitat conditions, predation, you name it. They're just not that great a competitor. And so one of the things that uh, will always be a challenge for sheep is having good habitat. And that's, that's probably where the Sheep Society has done so much good work and, and other sheep organizations throughout the West, all the chapters of the Sheep Foundation. And uh, they've, they've focused on improving habitat, water development, of course, in the desert areas is critical. And then just improving habitat and with better forage and, and more open country and um, that's that's going to be the key, maintaining habitat for sheep. And then in, within that habitat, you're going to still have to tweak things. Uh, we've had some significant problems with lion predation here uh, in the state and all over the West. Again, sheep and predation are, are two major conflicts. And uh, it's one of the things that we're going to constantly have to be aware of. And, and we've taken steps here to tweak that uh, in certain areas where we know that predation is having an effect on populations. We're working with the department to lower the numbers of lions in those areas so that we can ensure that the sheep have a chance. And so that'll be an ongoing effort without a doubt. And then in general, just habitat preservation. When you look at the way we have carved up our western states between cities and towns and freeways, um, all kinds of developments. In Arizona, as you know, we have got 40-acre ranchettes all over the place. Uh, and all of this works against wildlife. So it's one of those things that we're going to have to be vigilant and ensure that large blocks of land are in place where sheep have a place to exist. That's, to me, the biggest challenge we have, is the protection of the habitat. And w what kind of things do you think uh, can make the fight against that uh, stronger as far as just supporting the Desert Bighorn Sheep Society as being a member and going to the banquet and, and, and trying to raise money and, and help bid on things, but as, as well as donations? I mean, it, it ultimately comes down to money, does it not? Yeah, it does. Uh, today, uh, without adequate funding, you're not going to be effect effective at what you do. And, you know, in the past models of, the last, say, the last 20 years, the banquets and raising money and, and you know, building waters and, and uh, providing funds for transplants, those were all the positive things that moved us forward and increased our sheep numbers. 
But today our threats are much different. We're under a lot of threats politically and from the regulatory agencies, BLM, Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, National Park Service. All of these agencies have, I hate to say it, but the threat, without a doubt, of, of basically taking sheep off the landscape because of the fact that the regulations that, uh, uh, and I'm talking about everything from the Endangered Species Act to the National Environmental Policy Act, uh, and so many others. Um, those are things that within the, the, the bowels of those documents, those things tell us whether we will or won't or can or can't have wildlife out there in what numbers and what we can do to support wildlife uh, to enhance it, to ensure that it's out there. So to me, I see the, the horizon and the big threat without question is the regulatory process and the political process. Arizona is here is, an, of course, an initiative state. We're under constant threat by anti-hunters and others that uh, they'll take something to the ballot, put an initiative out there that you know might stop lion hunting or uh, it might have other effect on, on wildlife. Uh, they did it here, and they, of course, took trapping away, and that had a tremendous effect on our deer populations here. Our mule deer have not recovered, uh, in my opinion, when we lost that in 1994. And so those kind of things are, are what I, I think sportsmen need to be very, very aware of and monitor and active in. And, of course, those are the things, Jay, that we really don't like to do. I mean, we'd much rather build a water hole, get outside and do something for wildlife, than sitting across the table from a politician or advocating for people to go to the ballot box. Those are just things that, you know, none of us enjoy. But ultimately the success or failure of what we do will be more than likely will come down that route. Yeah, and and you talk about uh, the, the banning of, of trapping in 1994. I know that uh, back then you were a big proponent and advocate trying to stop that. In, in your mind, what did it ultimately come down to uh, where that bill uh, went ahead and passed and, 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 and trapping became illegal? How did that happen? Uh, what was the mechanism behind that? Well, initially, um, an attorney here by the name of Gil Shaw, and this was actually in 1992, uh, got together with a bunch of the anti-hunting population and, and worked to put uh, the initiative on the ballot, uh, Proposition 200, I believe it was, uh, that, uh, that would ban trapping. But it was written so broadly that it also without question, threatened fishing, hunting, everything outside. It had no limits. And uh, I debated Gill on television and radio quite a bit. And in each and every case when I brought this up, he said, well, it's not designed to do that. I said, well, Gill, if I take you at face value of what your intent is, perhaps so. But the simple fact is you put in place a mechanism in this language that would allow for uh, uh, the uh, uh, abolishing hunting and fishing. And I said, that ultimately is, uh, is, is totally unacceptable. By that alone, I said, first of all, I'm a proponent of trapping. But at the same, same time, the implied threat of being able to remove hunting, fishing uh, uh, activities for wildlife, I said, it's totally unacceptable. And we were able to defeat that. We raised over a million bucks and defeated it in 92. Well, being what they are, they came back in 1994, two years later, 
with very specific language with limits that took it right down to simply trapping on public lands. And it became a campaign that was supported by the Humane Society of the United States and Friend for Animals and all the rest of them, Sierra Club. Uh, and they put in a lot of money. And we couldn't raise enough money to defeat them. So with a more specific language dealing just with trapping, it passed. Well, what's happened? If you look at the, what, what transpired, I will tell you that in 1993, we trapped in the state of Arizona over 22,000 coyotes. And in 1994, after the regulation was in place, that number dropped to just a hair over 2,000 just on private land, no longer on public land. So you can see, you know, we, we dropped 90% of the coyote trapping simply went away. That made a tremendous difference, particularly for our mule deer. Um, it, it just, it, they're never going to recover. And uh, while they, we've had some improvement in wet years, uh, it's, it's not nearly what it once was and probably never will be again. And uh, that effect has really harmed not only the, the wildlife species, but of course it's, it's certainly harmed us uh, in terms of the number of permits here and the ability to hunt. So it's kind of an insidious plan in my mind that says, hey, again, we can take you to the ballot box or we can take you through the regulatory process and limit you. They know the public won't support a ban on hunting and a ban on fishing across this country. It's the public's strongly in favor of it. But where they can specifically look at something like trapping, which is perceived by many to be a cruel and, and uh, un, unneeded tool, if they focus on that, then they can get the ear of the public, and it's really difficult for us to uh, to fight it. So, you know, that's that's just that's going to be an ongoing fight. We're doing it now with wolves. We're doing it in other areas with burrows, for example. The same things going on right now. Uh, public sentiment, and the, and the animal rights people and anti hunters know exactly how to play that. You know. You bring up something interesting, both of which I'd like to talk about. That's wolves and burrows, but I'd like to talk about burrows first. Pete, I've had the experience to hunt up in uh, 15D North quite a bit over the last four or five years. And it, it speaking about burrows, before we get into wolves, it is amazing the amount of burrows that are in that 15D North, 15D South. And... It just seems every year there's more and more and more burrows. And, uh, you know, I had someone ask me the other day, well, said, well, geez, Jay, well, how many can there really be? And I said, well, I'll see hundreds. And they're like, hundreds? I'm like, yeah, hundreds. And, you know, the vegetation is just getting absolutely plundered. Um, what is going on because of the Wild Horse and Burrow Act? Obviously, those burrows are just set to to run free. Is there any stopping them? Uh, is there anything out there that's going to limit their numbers ever? Well, if it was left up to the boroughs, no. Um, <laughs> you know, the Wild Horse and Burrow Act and, and the regulation uh, in, in place um, calls for specific uh, uh, population numbers within herd management areas. And this is not just in Arizona, but it's every place else, California, Nevada, et cetera. And uh, the problem that we have, most of those lands are administered by the BLM. And the BLM throws its hands in the air and says, hey, we don't have the money 
to do this. So if you look at it, and they just did an extensive inventory, so to speak, survey here in Arizona, and Jay, we are, we are over in every one of the herd management areas by a tremendous amount. It's thousands and thousands of burrows. Yeah. Uh, it's worse than it's ever been. And of course, as you're, you're also aware, there's no action that can be taken by an individual or the public in general to, to uh, move burrows or trap burrows or get them out of the, the, the ecosystem. We can't do it. The feds have to do it. So the BLM says we don't have the funds and we can't do it. Well, what I see happening right now, and I know there's a tremendous frustration level at the Arizona Game and Fish Department. There, in fact, they just filed for a Freedom of Information request for all the information on the on the boroughs, and they're getting serious about it. Uh, they've tried for months and months to get the BLM to respond favorably and, and get some of these numbers down. And, and they're, they're doing it in tokens amount. You know, we're talking about moving 100 here and 50 here, something that will never even match the recruitment numbers that are out there. So um, they're, they're really looking at taking on the BLM and forcing the BLM's hand. I know they're getting very active on the uh, political level with some of the representatives and senators. Uh, to move this forward. Um, California's got the same issues. Nevada's got the same issues. Uh, other states, particularly with horses, have the same issues. And of course, we've got a horse problem here, too, as you know, across the yeah. rim and all of that country. I just came back from a sheep survey last week in which I saw more, uh, several hundred horses and I didn't see a sheep. Now, we did see sheep on the survey, but it's just the fact that they're there in those kind of numbers. So, yeah. We're going to have to force the federal government's hand on this and not let them get away with the, the, the concept, well, we don't have the money, so we can't do anything. It's getting down to the point where it is the, the habitat degradation that you mentioned earlier is becoming apparent all over. Um, it's, it's something that the um, other species, and, and this is another uh, facet of this that we're looking at is that there are other threatened and endangered species that are being affected by this now. There are certain, particularly bird species, some uh, that swim in the water species, um, simply because of the fact that these the, the waters are being uh, are being degraded to the point where they're unusable by wildlife and the forage that's out there uh, and the cover for these animals is is being uh, taken off the landscape. So there's a, a an active movement uh, to try to focus on this and move it forward, but like everything, it's grindingly slow within the federal government. It's, it's probably going to go, I think, ultimately to court because uh, the feds clearly aren't doing their job. They admit to it. But they say we, we, there's no way we can because we don't have the money. So it's it's ultimately going to wind up in court, in my opinion. Do you think? Do you see there ever being an opportunity where they come to terms and say, you know, one way that we could control the borough population is have a hunting season for them and actually let the public have a have a controlled hunting season and have a harvest objective? Or do you do you see that never being a, an even a an you know they'll they'll do aerial gunning or something before they would let the public have a hunting season. Well, more than likely, that's that's the case. I I can't see it. Uh, back in the 70s, when Wild Horse Annie was doing her thing, and she got the school children across this country to write to their congressmen and their senators, and ultimately 
create la uh, 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 language in a bill that you know was became the Wild Horse and Burrow Act. Uh, they embraced the public, and the public spoke very loudly. The public says, "Hey, we want to protect these what were said to be wild horses and burrows." Um, it's going to be very difficult, I think, with the media that we have that really doesn't care about truth, in my opinion. Uh, they'll say what they want for their own agenda and back those that support them in many ways. Uh, I think it's going to be very, very difficult to get public sentiment to a point where you could actually have a season in hunt and shoot burrows. Uh, it would be the most effective way to do it, uh, and the utilization of the meat same thing. Uh, all of that, in my mind, is a reasonable thing to do with a resource like this. It's out of control. But I think it'll be incredibly difficult to try to make that happen. I just think it's going to be one of those things where the, the antis and the uh, uh, horse and burrow advocates will have their way with the, the media and ultimately with the public. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a tough issue. Um, Pete, you also talk about the wolves, and that's a whole nother can of worms. Um, but this is definitely one that's very alarming to me. Um, having spent quite a bit of time up in the Yellowstone uh, Teton National Park area out of Jackson Hole and knowing what wolves can do, obviously the Mexican gray wolf is a little bit different than the wolf, but they're pretty much the same thing. Um, and watching the moose and elk numbers and obviously virtually no deer anymore. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, the wolf issue in Arizona. I, I, I want to say that they wanted to have 100 breeding pairs or something like There was some number, and I, I've heard that they're, they've far exceeded that now. Uh, what is going on with the wolf issue? Well... It's, it's in court. Let me put it to you there right now. There's uh, nobody satisfied with this, this whole process. The Fish and Wildlife Service, who, because of the Endangered Species Act, basically controls the uh, Mexican gray wolf uh, and anything that has to do with the Mexican gray wolf, is caught right in the middle. Uh, first of all, they have done a horrible job of administering this animal for the last 15, 16 years um, since they were transplanted back into the wild. They've really done a terrible job of administ administration. Um, that's one problem we have. There have been numerous pre uh, uh, previous court cases that have also put uh, limits on what can be done. Most of those have been brought by the antis. Um, where we find ourselves today, they came out with, uh, you know, a uh, the the first uh, piece of regulatory um, process that they've done in the last, I think it's eight or ten years now. And they've rolled it out, and uh, it was met with uh, concern by a lot of people. Uh, it was uh, something that. Uh, the Arizona Game and Fish Commission and Department had a, a hand in, in altering and, <clears throat> and ultimately making it into a better document, but it's still not a good one in my mind. And the antis hate it. They filed suit immediately and said, hey, what you've done with this is, uh, is unacceptable and we're not going to support it. And so they've taken them to court already. 
and uh, the department is lined up where it can now also enter a suit on the other side on behalf of the Fish and Wildlife Service because they're saying that we support what uh, has been put in place by the Fish and Wildlife Service. We collaborated with them. We believe it's something we can live with and uh, something that uh, ultimately uh, will give us the tools necessary to keep wolves on the landscape in some, you know, number and yet limit the effect they're having and the, the area that they're in. Um, I'm a bit of a skeptic on all of this. Um, it's one of those things that um, I, I know the people who are involved, good friends of mine, uh, I think they worked in earnest to do this and I think they came out with as good a product as you can in dealing with the Fish and Wildlife Service. I think it definitely has some positive, but at the same time, there's a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of triggers in this that depending on what happens, this management program can go a lot of different directions and, and wolf uh, uh, areas could be expanded tremendously depending on the numbers. Uh, the last survey they did here, we had 109 wolves uh, that met basically the 100 wolves on the ground kind of thing that uh, they talked about initially. And we know there's more than that. Uh, clearly that was what was actually, you know, extrapolated, seen and extrapolated from their models. Um, depending on uh, what comes out of the courts, and I would say over the next three to five years, we're going to see what that is. Um, litigation today really is one of the the most overbearing and yet most uh, uh, final uh, management tools for either the antis or the, the regula regulators like Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, all of these things are going to be brought to bear in this. This is going to be quite a fight. Um, you know, we, we're fortunate. You mentioned it earlier. Uh, these aren't northern gray wolves, thank God, because if you bring those 120, 40, 50 pounders down here, uh, we'd have a significant issue. These wolves are different. They are much smaller. Uh, however, all of these pups that are being born into the wild uh, now are also becoming much more effective predators on the ground without question. And as the program grows, if it doesn't have sideboards and we can't keep the the wild-born wolves in check, then I think it's going to be a real issue for our deer, elk, sheep, all, all of wildlife populations here in Arizona and New Mexico, without a doubt. Why is it that some think that uh, an animal like a wolf is better to have around and they don't see that if, you know, it kills off all the deer and all the elk, uh, that it's fine if the wolves are just, uh, you know, why doesn't the other side, uh, the antis and, and the pro-wolf, why don't they see that there needs to be a balance and that the wolves, they just don't play well with others and there can't be a balance? Well, some will tell you that the reason that the wolf is here is not because they want to necessarily bring the wolves back, but they wanted to control western lands and they wanted to control the process of administration of western lands. When you, when you dump on top of uh, a resource the administrative policy that comes forward like out of the National Environmental Policy Act, the Endangered Species Act, um, it really, really makes it difficult to effectively manage anything. Uh, when your, your most 
you know, w what's most important to you is the fact that you have to stay within the law. That often tells you that you're going to, I won't say necessarily fail, but but <laughs> it's certainly going to cause a great deal of of uh, harm to uh, effective management if the most important thing to some and, and to regulators it is, is, is staying within the process. So you take the Sierra Club, the Defenders of Wildlife, um, uh, the Forest Guardians, uh, and then many more. One of the things they want to do is limit you, me, and every other member of the public from accessing and utilizing our public lands in ways that we have traditionally done so forever. One way to do that is to put this overlay of the federal bureaucracy and the regulatory process in place that precludes us from doing just those things and basically makes it a priority for management of the lands to include management of these threatened and endangered species. And uh, it gives them a platform from which to speak. It gives them a platform from which to litigate. And it basically gives them probably the most important tools they have in the toolbox. If you look at what the Center for Biological Diversity does and how they exist on lawsuits against the federal government and the money they raise in these things, win or lose, because of the um, um, the way that the the uh, uh, process is set up, uh, it really makes it a, a question mark whether or not we can survive in this uh, atmosphere unless we begin to do the same thing. Um, many guys today are advocating doing just that, getting involved, raising money, suing people, suing agencies, organizations, playing the same game. It's something we don't do very well. It's something we've never had a, uh, a history of. It's something we don't want to do because we'd much rather work for wildlife in some fashion, improving habitat, water, whatever, and, and not become mired down in this. But the antis and their agenda, that's all they do. So they are a serious threat to wildlife, wildlife management, hunting and fishing uh, without question, and because they are so good at using the regulatory process against us and what we want. Pete, I know a, a few years ago there was a group that, uh, and you'll have to kind of walk me through this, but there was a group that wanted to uh, create some some tags. Uh, and I, I want to say that there were auction-type tags and maybe some raffle-type tags, some more of them, to raise some money to uh, fight a lot of this stuff that you're talking about. And on the face of that, it seemed as though, from my perspective, it seemed like a reasonable idea, uh, considering that it is very hard to get hunters and fishermen to get to get off their wallet, so to speak, and, and, and put up the money and, and to fight these things. And that uh, group, uh, it was um, defeated. Uh, it was, you know, pushed way down and it was, I don't know what the right word is, defeated, I guess is the right word, and saying that it was going to hurt the uh, average hunter and average sportsman. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was, what they were attempting to do, and maybe now, years later, looking back at that, do you think that that was 
a good idea? Do you think, do you still think it's a good idea or do you think it was a bad idea or give me your thoughts on that whole thing? Well, at one time I was an active part of the group you're mentioning, Arizona Sportsman for Wildlife. And uh, I had left the organization, been gone several years when, when they came forward with this. Um, and when I heard about it, it was at a point where the legislation had already been introduced in the uh, Arizona legislature. Um, they were poised to make a push for it. They'd spoken with the governor. They'd had, you know, they, they'd moved it down the road quite a bit. And uh, first of all, these are people that I think very highly of. I mean, I've, I've fought many battles with many of them. They're all good sportsmen and women. They're people that uh, have contributed in so many ways to, to, to uh, wildlife and, and, and sportsmen's issues here in the state for, forever. So let's first say that they were very, very well-intentioned. The problem that they came up with was they had decided that we've got to get this done and it's got to be done now. And um, I actually was invited to a meeting by a couple of them and said, hey, we want to tell you about something we're doing. And so I listened and, and I said, guys, I said, you know, I've worked at the legislature for the last two decades. And uh, I said, I've got a pretty good handle on Arizona sportsmen as well as far as what I think they will tolerate, won't tolerate. And while I absolutely understand what you're saying, what you're doing, and why you're doing it, they're going to come at you with everything they've got because they're going to perceive this as you're stealing their tags, that you're taking something from them, that you're taking opportunity away. Uh, and it's going to be one of the ugliest fights you've ever had. And as you know, Jay, that's what it turned out to be. We had months of uh, back and forth, back and forth, um, all of the um, chat rooms and, and all of the meetings, it was just it was just unbelievable. And then ultimately, uh, some within the, the department and commission came out very vocally opposed to it. And um, it, in my opinion, what they had to do to be successful was spend a couple of years, literally, working the department, the commission, and the sportsmen in order to educate them and, and develop this and move it forward. They didn't do that. They felt like our, our window of opportunity, as it happened with, with the governor at that time, was now. And she said she'd sign it. And with that, all we have to do is get it passed. We've got the horses to do it. Let's run with it. Well, in hindsight, I think if you ask them, uh, they would say that it was a mistake. I knew it was a mistake in my mind. Again, these are good people. There's no question about their, what their intent was. But what happened after that was, of course, they roll it out, and then it, it, things just exploded. And these, these same people were just being, I mean, they were taken to task and called every name in the book. And, and, and what, what, what amazed me, and something that I'll never forget, and it just it was drilled into me, I went to numerous meetings. I was still a member of all the organizations, and, and so I'd go, and I'd listen to the people that came and would talk about this, and, of course, they were just, they were ugly with it, uh, the, with what they wanted. These people were no good. They were trying to steal their tags, et cetera, et cetera. They lost the ability to focus on what was actually going to happen with these tags and, and what benefit sportsmen in general and wildlife in general would uh, be benefit overall from, from some, a program like this. 
And the other thing that, that really bothered me was you had organizations, and I'm just going to say it because I've, I've, you know, I've been outspoken a long time, and I'm, I'm not going to back off that. The older I get, the more outspoken I am. You had <laughs> Should be like that. Organizations. You, de- you deserve to have a voice, Pete. Well, you know, I, I, I sometimes think I've earned it, but at the same time, that's saying probably too much. That's I. Uh, no, you have earned it. It's it's a situation where I call a spade a spade, and uh, and here's where it played out. A couple of organizations, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and the Mule Deer Foundation, came forward and just began to beat on all the players in this deal, and they fired up their memberships and they started this just destroy them. It was as disingenuous as, as as anything I've ever seen. Why? Well, the ultimate uh, intent of this was to put together a convention here in Phoenix that where these tags could be auctioned and raffled and other things, bring in interest, bring in people, raise money to be able to protect ourselves in certain issues and be aggressive on, on issues in, in defending hunting and fishing and wildlife management to assist the department in doing other things politically that they couldn't do because they're an agency and they, you know they had limits. All of these things that were out there, well, the Mule Deer Foundation and the Elk Foundation, they do them every year. This is what they do. But they didn't want the competition. They did not want Arizona to be a player in this market. And they came out and helped fire up all of the anti and negative feeling against this group. And just, it was unmerciful when they were doing the very same thing that they were talking about doing here was already being done in Utah and in Nevada and et cetera for these other organizations. So I saw a tremendous division in sportsmen. And then when I listened to the individuals that came and talked at this meetings, it was always they're taking my tag, my, my, my. I heard it so many times I got sick of hearing the word. I've never heard a more disappointing dialogue from a group of, I won't call them conservationists, I won't call them sportsmen. I'll call them hunters because they're trying to be hunters. They want to go out and shoot something. But the simple fact was the most important thing to them was not the wildlife, was not the ability for us to be able to manage wildlife and protect hunting, fishing, trapping, uh, sportsmen in general, none of that. It was just the fact that they thought in their short-sighted way that they would be denied at tag, that they wouldn't be able to go shoot an elk, a deer, etc. And that was drilled home to me time and time and time again in listening to these people. And it just made me feel like there's very little hope in getting sportsmen educated to the point where, first and foremost, it's conservation, guys. First and foremost, we need to take care of the resource. Then, if the resource is healthy, we get to benefit from that. We get to hunt. We get to fish. We get to do the things that we enjoy. That ethic today, I don't even want to call them sportsmen. I don't know what you call them. They're takers is what they are, Jay. They're people that are more interested in benefiting themselves than actively working for wildlife. The the model in this country is tremendous. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt 
set down a wonderful model and, and, and left a legacy. And the last 100 years have been a tremendous success story. But it's based on protection of habitat, enhancement of habitat, basically supporting the habitat so it supports the wildlife, which basically supports game populations, which allow us to hunt fish and do the things that we do. When we lose that focus and we lose the conservation ethic, we are doomed to failure. We have 150, roughly, thousand hunters in the state of Arizona. Just think how effective a force we could be if financially and if they would participate in these organizations or work the regulatory process, how effective we could be in, in, in doing the things we need to do for wildlife. But we, don't, we didn't do that. We failed miserably when we were given a chance to here. And I'm going to have to say that the group that brought it forward failed because they needed to take the time to sell this. It's so controversial. They needed to make sure it was understood. They needed to have the department and commission in line with them. They needed to have the rest of the sportsman organizations in line with them. And they didn't do that. So it was doomed from the start, in my opinion. That doesn't mean it was a bad idea, but it, the, the process failed, and that hurt us all. Do you think it's – well, I got two questions. One is, uh, in my interpretation of what they tried to do, when you had the people that were saying it was going to take their tag and my tag, if I remember correctly – these were tags that were going to be on top of the already designed quota. So it actually wasn't going to take any additional tags out of the pool. Am I wrong in that it was actually added tags to the quota and that it wouldn't actually affect the general person's tag? Uh, that was the, the part of the discussion, yes. But you're never going to convince those. The argument that I heard so many times, Jay, was, hey, these, you can't just conjure up tags. You just can't make tags. from. You, if you've got uh, surveys and you've got information that says you can have this many tags, then that's it. All of those go to the general draw. Okay? Anything above that is not justified. You can't do that. So somewhere there's got to be a give and take. And if you're going to take X number of tags out of the – it has to come out of the main pool. So it was one of those things you couldn't sell the argument. It was one of those that, uh, you know, that you can't just go out and create them, although the Game and Fish Commission has done it for years, in my opinion, <laughs> uh, <laughs> with the assistance of the department at times. Um, but that's exactly the, the, the argument that was made that, hey, these have to come from somewhere, and you're taking them from us. We know it. So it, it really was just one of those one of those things that they needed to do was take the time and make the sale. You just educate. Educate, exactly. Yeah. And that, that just didn't happen. And so instead, instead it became just an incendiary uh, effort that just blew up. Do you think that something of a similar nature – I'm a pretty realistic guy, and I, I, I've heard all sides of the argument. And what I what I do hear is that we're in trouble, and that we don't have our we don't have enough money, and we need more money to fight and to do the things that we're going to do. My question is, where in the world are we going to come up with the money? Let's say you ha you have 150,000 sportsmen in the state of Arizona, which 
you know, with 6 million people or whatever, that's not that many, but it, it's a pretty good sized group. If every, if every one person would give $100, if my math is correct, that's $15 million that we could use to fight and, and, and have a voice. Mm-hmm. Well, the reality is the general public is not going to kick out $100, even though the, 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 the biggest blue-collar person out there that maybe even works on minimum wage can afford $100 a year, but the reality is they're not going to pay it. My question for you is, is the writing on the wall with the, the despair and the problem that we're in, and how are we going to generate money to fight this? Or is someday, probably not in you and I's lifetime, but someday down the road, we'll just get beat up so bad that we won't have the resources to fight and, and you know, the, 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 the luxury of hunting that we have now will be gone? Well, you know, I'd like to say the future is bright. Uh, I don't think it's that bright, personally. I'm not a, I've never been a naysayer or a doomsdayer or any of that stuff. However, long term, unless we recognize the value of standing up for what we, what we believe is right and standing up for wildlife, wildlife conservation, hunting and fishing, etc., unless we do that, yeah, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back to bite us without a doubt. Um, it's one of those things that... Uh, uh, you know, our culture has changed, and there's a lot of other options out there. Our time, we don't have any more time today. Everything's expensive today. I mean, all of these things. And so the, the hunting and fishing aspect is getting pushed farther and farther back for some, not for me and my family and the people that I hang around with, but for many of the casual sportsmen, it is. And unless we can rope them in to the conservation ethic and the, the understanding that, you know what, guys, Every once in a while, you've got to stand up and do the right thing for the resource. Give me the price of a box of shells. Give me the price of a tank of gas. Allow me as a sportsman to go forward with other sportsmen and fight all of these issues, etc. You can't even, we couldn't even get them to do that. Those are the two examples that I used, the, gas, the, the box of shells and gas, tank of gas. And you know what? It was like when you looked at the people sitting there, it was like you were staring, like you were stealing from them almost. It was as if uh, they couldn't register the fact that they owed anything. And if we, if that is what's going to limit us, and again, getting back to this my tag thing, um, if if that's going to be what limits us from being conservationists, then I hate to say it, Jay, but I think long term all of us are in trouble. In your mind, Pete. Uh, guys that are listening to this um, podcast, um, give me some examples of things that guys can do. Give me uh, organizations uh, that you feel are important that are that are fighting for hunters' rights and sportsmen's rights. And let's try and bring this a little bit full circle and tell me uh, what can guys do if they want to do something and what should they do I mean, in my opinion, anybody that hunts, anybody that fishes, and even if they don't hunt and fish, uh, but they agree with our right to hunt and fish, wh- what should they be doing? Well, there's a number of things. There's a number of ways to go. Um, and, you know, you want certainly um, support of the existing conservation organizations is important. Um, 
to me, uh, those are the guys and gals most likely to be out there fighting the fight and carrying the message forward. You know, that, that comes down to like 5% of the people in this state as far as hunters go. Uh, it, it, it's not much more than that. Uh, I can tell you that uh, most of us that have been fighting the battle, me for well, well over 30 years, uh, I, I rub elbows with people all the time, and, and most of them are familiar faces. Uh, so there's a handful out there. But we need the support of the other ones. We need their voice. We need their money. We need their support when we have an issue that's out there. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that, that I believe is important, uh, without a doubt. The recognition that uh, uh, you may, you, yourself, you may not be actively involved, but you can give us the tools to help us be more involved and better involved. That's important, and I think that's an obligation of everybody that has a license in their pocket, uh, plain and simple. And this is where I'm going to take a shot at the Game and Fish Department. Um, I, uh, for years, uh, along with a good friend of mine, John Colasar, we have advocated for a conservation bonus point. Uh, it's one of those things that... Uh, we have debated for over 20 years now with the department, and several times it's been close, but in each and every case, it's been the department that's beat it back, and the commission ultimately then backs up on it, and it doesn't happen. Here's an, and what I'm speaking about, most people don't even know about, but as you know here in Arizona with our bonus point system, we've got a hunter safety permanent point, and then we have a, a loyalty point, as they call it. If you put in for at least five years for a species, you get an extra point. Uh, so they're trying to, you know, embrace those that have, that have put in longer and those that have taken the hunter safety. That's good. But the conservation bonus point would be a tool by which we could get young families and particularly kids in the field. If you were given a bonus point, if you were, went out each year and you worked on a wildlife project, and because you worked on that project, you were given a bonus point by the department, um, it would be a real carrot to dangle in front of a lot of these uh, hunters, particularly the, 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 my, the my tags guys. My tags guys and the younger families with kids. Absolutely, it would. And it would give us a chance. You know, I've, I've been to countless pro, uh, projects for all the organizations, and one of the things we do is preach conservation. We get around the campfire on Saturday night and we talk about all kinds of things, but here's an opportunity. Kids love to go camp and they love to go out and run around. You're not looking to get the work out of them, no. I mean, certainly creating that uh, uh, work ethic is a great thing, but you're there for them to have fun and enjoy what they're doing out there first and foremost. And we need to provide that opportunity. The department needs to cooperate with us to make that happen so that we could get all of the kids and family members and everybody else that's going to want that bonus point out there and embrace them, get them more actively involved in the conservation movement. As it is right now, they're not. They simply aren't, and they don't understand how important that it is. So that, to me, is one of the things that really does need to happen. I think it'll help as much as anything recruiting young hunters, without a doubt. All the youth camps that we have by the different organizations, they're wonderful. But there's a lot of familiar faces year after year in those. They come from hunting families. We need to be able to reach out and get new people. We need a carrot to dangle. We need something that's a good marketing tool that people are going to want to take advantage of because they see a perceived benefit. 
And uh, to me, that would be incredibly important, uh, without a doubt. I'm going to throw another one out, too. And this is, I'm, you know, I've been a guide and outfitter for 30 years. Um, I've been on, well, I've, um, I'm fast approaching 200 sheep hunts. And it may happen before I croak, I don't know. But the simple fact is, the guides and outfitters that are out there, I, you know, the list is long if you've looked at it, just here in Arizona alone. But a lot of them don't engage. A lot of them do not work elbow to elbow with the rest of us in, in promoting it, uh, hunting and fishing and conservation. And that, to me, is, is a, it's just a huge downfall. It works against us. Um, if you have people in the field that are profiting from wildlife and, and all of the, the industry that goes along with hunting and fishing, uh, they ought to be actively engaged in, in, in some way. And I, I'm not sure the way to make it happen. I've talked about a, a guide and outfitter uh, uh, group state. we've had them before and 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 you know we're so doggone independent and, and it's just it's tough it's really tough but those are the people that really need to step up and and be a part of conservation and i find too many today are just absent from that process jay it's one of the things that i'm i'm also critical of i'm critical of the sportsmen who are absent and i'm critical of the guides and outfitters who are absent well and i think if you are looking at the guides and outfitters uh, you know, from one perspective, being a guide uh, in the state of Arizona, we are taking people for money to 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 harvest big game or small game uh, or fishing or what have you. And it, it does make total sense that that the guides and outfitters should be the leaders in conservation and should be, you know, and, and I'm pointing the finger at myself. Also in this, in that I think somewhat uh, apathetic, like you're saying, and and uh, you know you you get this take mentality that you know you're only worried about how many tags you're drawing yourself or how many clients you're taking and how much money you're making. Well, what about the fact if those deer or those elk or those uh, bass or whatever weren't there for you to take your clients to go fish, you wouldn't make a living. That's right. So it, it it you bring up a great point, um, and it's it's hit home with me. I'm already thinking of of things that I, I need to be doing that are more active and more proactive um, for conservation. But I mean, y you hit the nail on the head. I think there's a big group out there, and there's I don't know, is there a thousand guides or maybe more? Um, and if you take that group alone, you know, every one of them. And every one of us should be donating a certain amount of, of 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 our profits, so to speak. Even though you know, guiding and outfitting, it's not a it's not a huge money making business. But we're taking from the resource, and and you make a good point. I mean, we should be the leaders and the advocates in in leading the charge uh, for wildlife conservation. Absolutely, and and quite frankly, we we are absent in this process completely. Uh, there's a handful of guys and outfitters that have, have just contributed more than their fair share, without a doubt. But there are many who have never really done anything, and that's the, that's that's in my mind. That's just not the way this works. Like I say, it, it it shouldn't work that way anyway. That's right, and and I'm glad you brought that up. And um, we've covered a lot of ground today, and and I really appreciate having you on. Um, 
while I still have you on, I want to I want to shift gears for just a second and talk to you a little bit about uh, since you've had so much experience in the sheep woods and you've been on a lot of different sheep harvests. Uh, and I I'm a relative newcomer to the game. I feel like I've gained a lot of experience over the last few years, but but you know. Uh, I'm going to have to do this for another 30 or 40 years before I catch up with the experience you have. When you're evaluating, well, let's start with this. When you draw a sheep tag or someone tells you they draw a sheep tag and they don't have much experience sheep hunting, what are a few of the things that you tell them as a sheep hunter uh, when they draw their tag? Well, it's, it's, Arizona's interesting. Um, you know, we have between 13,000 and 14,000 applicants for sheep every year. And um, of that, you have a small handful that are dedicated sheep hunters, knowledgeable, trying their best to either draw a rocky or desert tag and have more than likely been trying forever to do it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the first-time applicant who uh, puts in and, and uh, draws a tag that they never expected to draw. Somewhere in between is every other facet of hunter uh, at, at every other level. And so every story that I hear is interesting. And over the years, I've probably heard just about everything that you can imagine. I get a lot of calls from people that uh, say, hey, I got a sheep tag. I didn't expect it. Uh, I've never hunted sheep. Um, I'm at a loss. Uh, what do I need to do? And Inevitably, that conversation goes down the road. Well, are you going to do it on your own? Are you going to look for help? You know, it's, it's kind of the evolution of this process. So the majority of people, of course, hunt on their own, and I'll address that first. Um, the people that don't have a clue, I will always direct them to the Sheep Society Clinic, as you know, as at least a good starting place. I will direct them to the Game and Fish Department and the, uh, the region that their their tags in and the, the, their spe specific wildlife manager and the game specialist for the region and all of that. Try to get them to where they can at least be uh, engaged in, in finding accurate information that will benefit them as they go down the process. Um, some people are very casual with their tags. It's like, well, you know, I... I I don't know how much time I'm going to have. I've got work, and I've got family, and I've got this, and I've got that. So it's, it, there again, it becomes uh, how important it is to each and every one of them. And you have to kind of judge that, too, because uh, in, in talking to these people, I, uh, you know, there's some first-timers that are absolutely uh, fully engaged in wanting to do well and, and do a good job on their hunts. There's others that take a much more casual, um, relaxed, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe yeah. not attitude. So it's across the board is what I'm saying in, in talking to these people. But first, getting them good information from the right sources, get, giving them some history on their unit so they know what has taken place before them, what's realistic, what uh, the issues are, all of those things is, is very valuable um, without a doubt. You talk to other people, and they're searching for guides and outfitters. And I say, hey, absolutely, same same process. But you're looking for the person that you're going to have confidence in to get out there, and you know you can embrace. They know the unit. They have history in hunting the unit. They've had success in hunting the unit. Uh, 
talk to their references, talk to their uh, uh, people within their area that know them. You know, just knock yourself out to, to be comfortable with the fact that the person you're talking to could do a good job for you. And then it comes down to a lot of personal opinions as far as how well you get along with them and the rapport you develop and all of this. But, but you, you've got to, got to do that. And then if you find a person like that that you want to you know, hire, then work with them. Believe them. Don't, don't second-guess them. Get involved with them and become engaged in your hunt. Uh, those, to me, are the... The, the people that most of us really like to have out there. You, you've done enough sheep guiding now. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, we want people that are out there for the same reason we are, being thrilled to death to be out there every day hiking those hills and glassing those hills and finding those sheep and, and enjoying every minute of it. And so those are the hunters that you really, really want to have, but there's not a lot of them. There's a lot of them that may want to try to become that, a lot of, and then there's others who are... Mm, you know, I'm just not sure what they want. So it's a process, but it's a lot of listening to hunters when they call for me. And then that leads me down a, a path that ultimately I'd make some kind of a recommendation or, you know, give them whatever information I think would help them the most. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, Pete, I want you to touch on uh, something else. Uh, w when I started sheep hunting, uh, I was told and, uh, by many people, including one of them was yourself at the sheep clinic, um, that our job as sheep hunters is to try and shoot the oldest and ma most mature ram on the mountain. Mm -hmm. And it just seems as though uh, that over over time that maybe that principle of uh, what I would call the old-time sheep hunters, and I mean that with every bit of respect that I can give the veteran sheep hunters that old adage of we're going to shoot the old mature rams and maybe there's a ram that's bigger a you know big beautiful ram that's bigger but it's a young ram that's got a lot of life left and it, it seems to me that that has kind of been thrown out the window somewhat it seems to me that the the veteran the old school way of we we are going for old mature rams when when people get caught up in score uh, and and get caught up in trying to be the biggest and the best and what have you and the ego and all of that, can you can you tell me the roots of the adage shooting the mature, shooting the old ram instead of shooting the young ram? Sure. You know there was a time when we had far less sheep than we do today, and every sheep was I, I can't say more important. But every sheep was incredibly valuable because the population number was a couple of thousand instead of six to seven thousand. And so when you were out there and you saw that four or five year old ram, even though there were few in number and you had to bite the bullet and pass that ram to, to find another one that was older, you did it because you knew that that ram was going to be there for another four or five years and that he would be able to help propagate additional sheep and it was important for that to happen. And you, instead, you went on and you looked for that guy that had, you know, <laughs> was beat up and busted up, had one eye left, it, you know, walked with a limp and uh, busted up face, and it had a lot of character. Uh, he wasn't necessarily the biggest, but he had lived his life, and he was at the end of that life, 
and taking him out of the population instead of one of the young rams was the right thing to do. And it also was a measure of, and this is now I'm talking for me personally, I've always used age as a, my most important criteria for hunting sheep. My Grand Slam is old, very old. And uh, I, uh, I pride myself on that. Uh, my sheep have all averaged over 10 years old. Some of them are 13. And I just, I really believe in that, quite frankly. I think that's the right thing. Um, there are some people that are absolutely hung up on score. Uh, if it doesn't measure this, then I don't want it. Um, those those values are, you know, that's that's the individuals in us and, and our backgrounds and, and what we desire is what that is. And you sometimes you can't get away from those. Uh, some people are, are and I've had hunters tell me right up front, you know, if it's not a 170 ram or 180 ram or whatever it might be, then I, I'm not interested in it. And the fact that it's 10 or 12 years old, well, that's nice and it's a great ram, but it's not my ram. So, you know, we all hunt for different reasons, and uh, I, uh, it's one of those things that I've always respected a hunter's wishes, and I will always tell a hunter what my thoughts are, and then if they're divergent from the, the hunter's thoughts, then I have to respect those. As a guide, I cannot hunt for myself on their tag. I have to, you know, look for whatever it is that's there. Um, I'll be honest, I've, you know, laid right along next to somebody who's about to pull the trigger and I'm looking at a 10-year-old 170 ram and, and a 6-year-old 180 ram and, uh, you know, that hunter knows how I feel, but I certainly am not going to be so overbearing that I tell them they, they shouldn't shoot that bigger one that they want to shoot. And I've had other people tell me that, hey... I don't want one that's busted up. I want one that's clean and pretty and still has its lamb tips and all this stuff. So there's a lot of a lot of opinion, certainly, uh, and it's it's one of those things that um, if it, if I had to do it my way, he'd be real old and real big, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> the simple fact is you can't always do that, and that's not what, I, what what everybody wants. But to to use that as a barometer, as a place to start in any discussion about a sheep or a sheep hunt, I think is a good thing. I think you, you can't turn your back on age. Um, I've seen some magnificent sheep come out of our desert down here that are 10, 12, 14 years old, Jay, they don't score 145 inches. Yeah. They're just, they never would. It's like people. Some of them are great yeah. big and some of them are small. And, yeah. you know, you're not going to get away from it. But that's a great ram. That's, that's, that's a magnificent sheep that existed, found a way to make a living in a desert for 10 or 12 years. And he's old and he's tired and he's just a magnificent trophy. And I would never tell anybody that that wasn't as good a trophy as the guy who shot that magnificent 185. Yeah. Know. Yeah. That's uh, that's great stuff and well said there, Pete. Uh, I really appreciate having you on uh, with us here on the podcast and uh, wish you the best. I know you're headed to Alaska to do some fishing and hope, hope you catch a lot of halibut and salmon and ha- have a good trip up there and um, look forward to seeing you again. Uh, sometime this fall or this winter. I know I'll see you somewhere, and it's always good to see you. And I want to thank you publicly for all the work that you've done the last 30, 40 years uh, being an advocate for us hunters 
and um, you don't get told thanks enough, and um, that that's too bad, and I'm sorry for that, but I want to tell you that I do know, uh, I have uh, an idea of the amount of work that you've done, uh, even though you were working long before, you know, I was probably even around, um, and I just want to thank you for that, and thank you for that, that spirit of uh, giving to others and, um, you know, not seeing a reward for it, uh, very often and, or at all and still plowing away. So I just want to thank you for that. Well, Jay, thanks for your kind words. Uh, I can tell you and I'll tell your listeners that, uh, without a doubt, um, some of the young guides that are coming up today, I'm re- very impressed with you and, and Dar, a couple of them. Uh, I, I know you guys, uh, you care a lot. I know you do a great job for your clients. Um, I believe you're conservationists who want the best for the resource and, and want to protect what we have, and, and uh, we could use some more like you as well. So, Thanks for the kind words, Pete. You take care, and uh, I'll see you when I see you. Until then, God bless you, okay? All right, buddy. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, guys, that was a great episode with Pete Similero, and I want to thank him for being on the podcast. Today is September 9th as I record this episode, and I'm up in Unit 9 actually recording from uh, my elk camp, and uh, the bulls are starting to sound off. Uh, It seems like they're shutting down pretty early, uh, maybe 30 minutes after daylight, Um, but I have seen some bulls kind of pushing some cows around. Uh, The bigger bulls seem to still be off by themselves, but uh, the bugling seems to be getting better and better every day, so it's just exciting times. Uh, we've already had some great antelope harvested uh, here in the state of Arizona on the uh, rifle antelope hunts uh, and some, some of the archery antelope hunts. And uh, the archery elk hunts uh, are right around the corner starting this Friday on the 11th. So uh, exciting times to be a hunter here in Arizona and across the southwest, uh, getting lots of reports in from bulls in Utah and and uh, Colorado. And um, it's a uh, It's a great time. So, uh, guys, uh, I want to remind you, uh, DeadeyeOutfitters.com is also a sponsor of this podcast. And if you use the J. Scott promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount on all purchases. Make sure to visit them at DeadeyeOutfitters.com. They make quality t-shirts and and hats. Uh, They are hunters. Uh, They make all of their clothing with hunters in mind. So, um, check them out. Also, thanks to GoHunt.com Insider. Uh, for being the title sponsor of this podcast. Uh, and uh, guys, your support, it just uh, never ceases to amaze me. Um, just a very humbling experience having uh, as many listeners and downloads as I've had. It's uh, something that I, I, I didn't expect. Uh, I expect to have some success, but not near the success that it's this podcast has had, and that's directly attributed to you guys. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, you can follow along uh, the fall season uh, elk adventures on my Instagram, at jscottoutdoors. Um, not able to update Facebook and my blog as much, jscottoutdoors.com and jscottoutdoors on Facebook. Uh, but check it, check out uh, Instagram to get uh, the most up-to-date stuff. And uh, the muzzleloader hunt's uh, going to be kicking off here on the 18th of September, and I'm looking forward to that. So, guys, uh, give it all you got this fall. Uh, you never know when, when it's your last fall. You never know when it's your last hunting season. And um, um, just uh, give, give it everything you got. Give it 110%, and let's get after it. And I can't wait to share some 
some photos and stories uh, after the uh, after the hunts. Uh, please email me uh, successful photos. Um, uh, you want to tell a story of photos of your hunt, jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. And I just want to thank you guys again for all of your support.